Hey, this is the last coffee house. We have read Hillbilly LG by JD Vance. So now we're discussing it. We're going to dive a little deeper and try to figure out what's going on with some of these ideas here. Now, in the discussion, we're not just discussing the book, the particulars of the book, but we're trying to go into the concepts that are introduced here and iron some stuff out. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, I really like Christmas carols. Have you guys been listening to these things? I've just been popping them on. They've been so enjoyable. There are some, I just find myself singing a few of them. What's the one with the chestnuts roasting on things? That one, I just, when it starts up, I just feel so happy. Even when I just think of the beginning. What am I talking about? So we're talking about Hillbilly Elegy. So, one of the issues that he brought up was about the cause. Obviously, the cause of the Appalachian inhabitants having so many issues. And a lot of the issues he talked about, you know, drug use and poverty and making bad decisions, bad choices. This is something that he emphasized in the book, was that a lot of people made really bad choices. And he tried to hone in on what the actual causes were to these things. Obviously, it's an extremely complex, it's kind of the question when it comes to we hire primates, is what's the balance of genetic characteristics versus what we can learn or unlearn? And that's always, I mean, that's a fascinating question to me. And that's kind of the backbone of every interest that I have in memetics and trying to quantify exactly how much influence a given meme has on a person. Like if they hear an idea, how much does it actually move them or mutate or attach to other concepts in their brain or get affected by all sorts of other people in the way that they are interacting with that idea? How does that, how much does that move? Can we quantify that? Can we make that some kind of scientifically rigorous standard to really understand what is happening when a meme runs from one person to another person in whatever way that it does? And in service of that, I've been trying to iron out this kind of concept of the difference between ways of communication. So one way of communication that we've talked about is archetypal communication. So it's it's that you talk in chunks of concepts. You don't talk in kind of these clean lines that you'd love to be able to when it comes to trying to get across some empirical truth. You're just trying to say, okay, this is what's true, this is reality, this is the science behind this or whatever. If you could talk just in straight empirical truth and cut away every other possible implication or inference or anything else that somebody else could take from it, then you could talk honestly and empirically. But the way that we mostly have to communicate and the way that we kind of, a lot of the greatest communicators are able to communicate like this the archetypal way, they do it on purpose. So Friedrich Nietzsche is one of them, Jordan Peterson is another one, where they're able to communicate in such a way that they are using archetypes, the archetypes that are built in to the way that we function, they're using those to still get across ideas while navigating all of all the built-in chunks of concepts that they have to deal with. So one way to put it, and I think this might be kind of a good way to really understand it, is if you talk about the concept of free will, and this is something that comes up in the book specifically, Hillbilly Elegy, is that one of the big ideas is that he puts the work in, you know, he talks about how he's lucky in having his grandmother and his grandparents there and getting to live with her and all the the steps along the way, like meeting his his future wife and, and those things. All of those are very important, and he acknowledges, you know, with humility, which is a very mature thing to do, that he got really lucky in the way that things happened, that he was able to get where he got. 
But he also talks about free will and the ability to, or at least implies the concept of free will, in choosing to do the right things and the people who don't do the right things choosing to do the wrong things. So the concept of free will is what I'm talking about here is that the concept of free will is actually ludicrous. It, it doesn't, it's not a thing. It doesn't make sense. So it's not even just that scientifically you could say that uh, there's some kind of precedent to any given thing that you want to do. You know, there's a deterministic line between the thing that happened before and whatever you're choosing, quote, 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 unquote, choosing to do now. It's not even just that, which is kind of an easier way to talk about how free will doesn't make any sense. But even philosophically, free will doesn't make any sense as a concept. So we could go into that, and that'll be something we talk about in the future. But just for now, just take that for what I'm saying. So the point is that free will might not be something that's true. It might not be a concept that can be empirically demonstrated, but it's an archetypal method of communication that is important that gets things moving. So within like the concept of memetics, you would have these archetypes that aren't specifically true, but they communicate something that has an effect and it's an effect that's positive. So if you're trying to herd cattle, it's not that you necessarily have to explain to the cattle why they need to move toward the slaughterhouse. I don't know if this is the best metaphor for it. But if you try to herd cattle, then the archetype would be to, you know, nudge them in one way or the other or just give them a line to this different area where you want them to graze so you can get them closer to the slaughterhouse. <laughs> but the uh, the archetype is a more effective way of communicating than just the empirical method of communication. So, like I said, free will might not exist, might be a nonsense concept, just period. But the archetype of the concept of free will is something that is very useful for people individually, for people collectively, just as a meme, as a philosophical construct to be able to get people's behavior to change. So to further explain it a little bit more is just something like the concept of mother. If somebody says mother, mother is going to have all these prepackaged propositions that are just shoved in there. And there are going to be all sorts of ideas that are cutting and carving a bunch of different ways. And they're going to do it in different overlapping ways with different people. So they're going to be overlapping empirical realities about mother. They're going to be overlapping just uh, random ideas about mother, about representations of the concept in pop popular media, about representations in the history of literature, how you know your mother, you know, what you know about your mother, how close you are, all those sorts of things are just going to be jammed in to this meme, this archetype of mother. And that's even setting aside all the biological imperatives that we have around the concept of mother, that you might have this or that inclination or disinclination, that you have this sense that you need to protect your mother, protect the, <laughs> the honor of your mother, whatever else. All those just get jammed into the archetype of mother. So when you're trying to communicate about it, you can be aware of that. And that's why you try to use archetypes instead of the empirical method of communication about it. So the reason that archetypes are better is because they include all facets of a concept in the means of communication. Obviously, the Greeks talked about the way that you try to communicate or make an argument about something. But the ethos, pathos, and logos... So the ethics of the thing, the emotions of the thing, and the logic of the thing, you're trying to build into an archetype so that you can get this concept across in a more effective way than if you just tried to talk about the pure, denuded <laughs> empiricism of a given concept. Okay, we're getting into some crazy arcane philosophy, mimetic, linguistic stuff, rather than talking about the book, so we'll just, we'll 
circle back around and get back to the book now that I got to go through a bunch of that whole stuff. I just love, I love talking about it. I, I want to get a pure concept down that we can try to figure out how to quantify the memetics in this area. I think this is the frontier of being able to understand the way that people learn, come to learn, and make decisions, make bad decisions, make good decisions, all that stuff. I think this is kind of the frontier of being able to understand this. And we can get the whole discipline of psychology through its Copernican moment. So it can be something that has has more rigorous standards and we can really nail down what people are and why they do what they do. So to get back to the book, I mean, in in the book, obviously, J.D. Vance's mother had a whole bunch of complexities related to her that were emblematic of all of the issues that surrounded this Appalachian community, the Hill people. And of course, there's a bit more complexity because he moved out and went to a different area while still having his roots there. You know, much of his family moved out and he lived with his grandmother, left his mother and and all sorts of other things went on. But anyway, she was a drug addict. She had multiple partners and lived with a bunch of different guys as they were growing up. She suffered and inflicted abuse, whether it's emotional or physical. So all these various things, he said this is part of a a kind of packaged pattern of the way that the hillbillies of the area experienced, were experiencing life, and that had a dramatic effect on the way that they worked, and the way that they engaged with other people, and even in some positive ways, probably the fierceness with which they try to defend their families and all that sort of thing, probably had a lot to do with this kind of upbringing. But, you know, the bigger question, and he was talking to Ben Shapiro, I think, he was talking about economics and how it wasn't just about economics. You know, it was about behavior too, and it was about this emotional and psychological sense and how they've been affected and all that, all that sort of thing. And how he had a friend. Maybe it was just in the book he was talking about this. This friend that, or at least just another person who was in the area who had kids and no interest in working and just sat on the front porch all the time. And and there was just this this psychological block and this learned helplessness was a term that we talked about before. Extremely important, which will actually come up in a second here. But that they said that there's just nothing that they could do. There was nothing, no way that they can get out. Okay, so to go into this review, there's a review here. So The Guardian, the article is titled Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance Review. Does this memoir really explain Trump's victory? So already, you know, it's going to annoy me because it's it's trying to tie something that is so much bigger directly down to Trump, which is there's this weird, we've got to have a new, like there's Godwin's Law for every conversation or every internet dispute eventually mentioning Hitler, there's got to be some comparable law that's going to refer to any given liberal tying anything they don't like back to Trump. But the subheading of this, one of the standout successes of 2016, Vance's account of his white working class origins should be treated with caution by commentators. Should be treated with caution. You have to have caution for somebody's book that's a memoir about their experiences in a low-income white working-class neighborhood. Anyway, the author is Hari Kunzru, and okay, here's the first quote that I pulled out here. Quote, As more than one reviewer has pointed out, Vance's stories of hillbilly pathology are peculiarly reminiscent of the welfare queen stories deployed against black people during the Reagan years to justify his assault on the social safety net. He is comfortable with the explanation of white pathology that rely on psychology and culture, but not on structural economic inequality, end quote. 
I just, this is another thing where you just get to use the word structural in anything and it's supposed to just establish your concept just like that. You don't have to explain anything else. It's just structural. Don't worry about it. You don't need evidence. You don't need argument to demonstrate this thing is here. I just use the word structural. So there's no counter argument that you could possibly muster that that would push back against my use of the word structural. We're done here. The author has a problem with the fact of explaining these issues with psychology and culture. That's a problem. Psychology and culture, the cultures and scare quotes in this in this quote, where the author says it should have been explained using structural economic inequality, that that's the real question. Now, obviously, something we've probably talked about at some point, it's unbelievably patronizing to say, to completely deny the agency of the people that you're talking about. Just to say that, okay, anybody who happens to be poor, they don't have any choices that they can make. That is exactly what learned helplessness is. Is to say, you can't make any choices. You're too weak. You're too pathetic. You're part of a structure that doesn't give you an option to be able to do anything else. And of course, the author has to tie it in, even though we're talking about poor white people here, the author has to tie it into some kind of a a race-related thing that's like, oh, it's like the welfare queens (laughs) against black people during the Reagan years. Again, obviously, if you want to talk about these concepts honestly, as an adult, instead of just running down these incredibly stupid means of, well, I use the word structural, so I guess I must be right. The problem here is that even when you're talking about welfare during the Reagan years or you're talking about Appalachian communities of white people today, the complete and utter denial of treating these people as individuals who get to make decisions, who get to try to do better for themselves or have the opportunity of doing so is unbelievably patronizing and it's actually incredibly destructive of the community that you're trying to pretend to advocate for. You have to inculcate an idea, an idea of work hard, do your best, whatever impediments that you happen to run into, get over those, hop over them, crawl over them, push through them, break through them, whatever you have to do, get somewhere. That is where you get to the highest possible capacity of the people you're talking about in the worst conditions. I was just listening to Thomas Sowell. He was talking to uh, somebody. But he was talking about how for almost all of human history, everybody has been poor. So it's not it's not some kind of miracle that there are poor people today. What is miraculous is that there aren't poor people, that some people got out of it. That should be the question. That should be what you're looking at is, okay, how did the people who are no longer in that poverty, how'd they get out of it? Because the status quo should be everybody is poor. But again, we've got this childish look at the way all of this sort of stuff functions. And we've got authors like this one who just have a a political ideological agenda that they're trying to push so they can make themselves feel more virtuous, saying that, okay, well, you have to give the government more power, you have no agency, you have no ability to do anything, sit around and wait until we give the right people the right amount of power for this to be fixed. Which is, of course, not just stupid and contrary to all the factual analyses that you could possibly do of the situation, but it embodies this kind of just collective degradation of the populations that you're talking about here. The second quote says this, quote, There's been considerable pushback against this view, not least among those who wonder why supposedly good new identity politics let us go forth and understand these dispossessed whites 
is a cure for the bad. I love how, okay, I'm cutting in here because I love how petulant and flippant this person will treat. Oh, understand these dispossessed whites. They'll, they'll treat the Appalachian white people this way, but if it were a black community, would they be talking in this way? Would they be so flippant about it? Would they sarcastically mention it in, an, in a way like this if it were a black community? Of course not. Back to the quote, is a cure for the bad old identity politics that supposedly caused Hillary Clinton's defeat. The notion that it's up to elite liberals to make an either-or choice, the agenda of the white working class against the agenda of the minorities, is nonsensical and patronizing. I love, oh, yeah, you're going to talk about being patronizing. Sorry, I'm just interjecting. Economic distress in the U.S. does not respect racial boundaries. The losers under Barack Obama haven't just been older white blue-collar workers in the Rust Belt, but urban millennials exploited in the gig economy. There are so many dumb things in this article, it's unbelievable. They'll say something that has, they'll just flicker with something that makes some kind of sense, like economic distress in the U.S. does not respect racial boundaries, and then talk about poor urban millennials exploited by the gig economy, and then bring up police violence in the next sentence. Police violence and vendor, environmental justice, which, oh my god. The whole movement related to environmental justice is about saying that people are disparately impacted by the bad environment based on their skin color. And access to healthcare have little to do with pronouns. Readers looking to understand the class fault lines within white America will be enlightened by Vance's narrative of class mobility. But as a guide to the new political terrain, Hillbilly Elegy is uneven and frustratingly silent about the writer's real commitments. End quote. I mean, this is one of those things where somebody writes a whole bunch of stuff and does nothing to contribute to the discussion whatsoever and does everything they can to obscure it and make it much worse. So many dumb things just in that little chunk. And I don't even, I mean, obviously we've talked about police violence and how it's ridiculous. It's it's not just ridiculous. It's pure insanity to talk about it as some kind of a, an epidemic that needs to be addressed, the police violence right now. It's ludicrous. Look at the numbers. And the fact that the gig economy, I mean, we're t look at this just gish gallop of random things that's just being tossed out there. The gig economy offers flexibility. It's just the same reason why California, California, the leftist of leftist states, rejected the idea of forcing companies like Uber and Lyft to provide uh, medical benefits and em other employee benefits to people who are independent contractors under those areas. At least they were had the wherewithal to see, okay, well, if we do that, we're not going to have the flexibility that we have. If I need to make up an extra $400 for the rent this month, I can just hop in my car, plug in a light, and off I go. I get to go make the money that I need, and it's not a big deal. If you force all these uh, these gig companies, you know, like Uber and Lyft, if you force them to carry the liability that comes with having a bunch of employees, then they're either not going to be able to function at all. They have to fire a whole bunch of people now and just hire a smaller amount of people. We've had taxi services for a long time. Or just move to another area and just not function in California. So a gig economy, it's not exploiting urban millennials. <laughs> urban millennials have the flexibility to choose something else when something more traditional isn't going to work. Flexibility is an excellent thing in the economy, in the gig economy. Being able to choose something that's going to fit your particular requirements and lifestyle is extremely important. And the people who pretend to be helping, like this idiot writer and idiot politicians, they're doing so much damage.
damage to the people that they're pretending to help because it's not really about results. It's really about just getting the virtue points right now when they're saying the thing that they're saying. So obviously the thing that they have a problem with and the big shift because Donald Trump won is the whole idea of the American dream of being able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. They have a problem with that because it cuts against the need of the government to have enough power and money to step in to be able to do those things. And whether this particular writer realizes it or not, it's a broad advocacy for the kinds of government power that gets misused once it's acquired. And not only that, but it, it will severely damage the people that it's pretending to help. But this, this review, quote-unquote, is just a trash ideological takedown. It doesn't have any interest in what's actually true or what's actually best for anybody. It's just trying to sell an ideology, and it's so sad to see these kinds of things out there. I cannot believe that there's a human being on this earth, and especially an adult human being, who is so childish in their thinking or dishonest to regurgitate something like this onto a page. So, sorry I pulled so many punches in reviewing that review, but maybe the next time, you know, I'll just be open about what I really think about these writers. Anyway, so we got to do a little bit more talk about Hillbilly Elegy. There are so many things that we could talk about and just go on and on, but I've already talked for a half an hour, and I'm going to have to cut this thing down and get it up as soon as I can. And then we're going to have a bunch of special episodes, some really special stuff that's probably going to be a surprise for Christmas. Uh, I love doing special Christmas stuff, because I don't think we did one last year. But I want to do a special Christmas thing. We did a special Thanksgiving thing, special Halloween thing. We're doing a special Christmas thing. And then we'll just be on a, a speed course to 2021, a new decade, <laughs> a brand new decade after the worst year of all time. I know some people have been pushing back on the whole worst year of all time moniker. However, let me repost because I think it revealed in the most powerful Western country, what is supposed to be the most free country in the world, it revealed all the worst things I have ever seen about a country that's supposed to be a mature democracy. I cannot believe what the media and what the political party, at least one of the political parties, and joined by a lot of the members of the other political party, are willing to do in contravention of the freedom that we're all supposed to enjoy. There are no more kind of understandings. You know, there's there's no more of that background, okay, yes, we're in a fight here, yes, it's a competition, we're trying to win, but we still respect the institutions of our great country. There's no more of that. This is the worst year of all time. <laughs> Because we got to see what happens when the worst of us get the most influence. And so I, I'm going to respectfully disagree with a lot of people that who are saying that the Black Plague or just any, any year a few thousand years ago or anything like that were the worst years of all time. Or when there was like a genocide on or something like that. I think there's something more deeply concerning going on in 2020 than there ever has in a country that's supposed to be civilized. In a world that's supposed to have reached a level of civilization that we don't have to worry about this kind of stuff anymore. So anyway, <laughs> I'm glad we got to talk about a hillbilly elegy, and I'm glad we got to talk about some other stuff, and uh, I will see you on the Christmas Christmas deal. I've got some more books that I'm working on, some long ones uh, that are going to be a lot of fun, but I hope all is well. I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. <laughs>